Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this morning that Your grace has provided for us. We have cause to celebrate today as we do every waking moment because of the powerful revelation of Jesus Christ revealed to the hearts of those whom You've called out from the darkness of sin and set on the rock, Jesus Christ, and commissioned now to shine with the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, Father, that the miracle that happened in the hearts of the disciples upon the realization when the Holy Spirit visited them and they saw, Lord, with their eyes of faith, the glorified Christ in connection with all the words that have gone before from the voice of the apostle, from the prophets of old, Lord. And then they joined with their own voice, the apostles in the new covenant, to shine forth, Lord, through the message of the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that that same Holy Spirit would indwell us, that would be present, Lord Jesus, in this meeting, illuminating the scripture to our souls, writing upon the tablets of our understanding truths of what Easter, what the resurrection truly means. I pray today, Lord, as we explore your scriptures, that you would guide us, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would awaken our souls, Lord, to fresh zeal and joy, as well as reverence and fear, as we see you unfolding there. I pray, Lord, when these prayers are answered, that you would get all the glory and the praise, because certainly the vessel that delivers us word to you, to these Your people today is of absolutely no account, a sinner like the rest of us. Only you and you alone, Lord Jesus, are deserving of glory, should use this time to draw our attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would, both in the delivery of the word and in the hearing, so that we might be, Lord, just moved to give you more glory beyond this place by shining beyond these walls for as many days as you give us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. What a privilege to celebrate resurrection this morning with you as we do every Sunday. This is the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. In a moment I'll ask you to turn, I'll ask you to turn now with me to Acts chapter 2. In a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 36 will be our text. While you're turning there, this morning's message is entitled, Both Lord and Christ. The title is, Both Lord and Christ. That is to say, this is a phrase from Acts chapter 2 in the conclusion. The main idea, the theme of Peter's first message here, as the Acts of the Apostles is unfolding in chapter 2, the main idea is that Jesus Christ has been revealed to the disciples, the apostles, and then through them, to as many as the Lord, their God shall call as both Lord and Christ. A comprehensive understanding and declaration of the person and work of Jesus Christ, which included the events of Calvary, Christ's burial, His suffering and death and burial, and then His subsequent resurrection and ascension. So with your Bible open to Acts chapter 2, verse 22, I just ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word today. Here we have the words of Peter in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand, of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week on Palm Sunday, as we traditionally in the church of Jesus Christ come to celebrate the event that preceded Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection and ascension, we celebrated and remembered last week the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was entering Jerusalem on a donkey, a surprising beast to be sure, for the significance of this occasion. Because Christ was coming humbly on the foal of a donkey, yet juxtaposed against that humble entry into this holy city, this historic place of fulfilled prophecy, was a king. But not just any king. The King of Kings. And by the Spirit's power to reveal, there were some with childlike hearts and faith, and in some cases children themselves, who saw this event in its significance. They grabbed palm branches from the trees. They laid their cloaks in front of this beast of burden, and they cried out in voice and in song, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the Son of David. In verse 14 of John chapter 12, it says, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it, was, as it is written. And here we have a prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9 in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before this moment. Verse 15 in John's Gospel records, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, John chapter 12 reads as follows, His disciples... And among them, pausing there for a moment, would be, of course, Peter himself, who delivered the message we just read from Acts chapter 2. His disciples, and we could insert including Peter, did not understand these things at first. But when Christ was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John twelve sixteen tells us that the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament and the person of Jesus Christ were relatively disconnected ideas. They were disconnected ideas in the minds of even the apostles and the disciples until a significant moment. That significant moment is described here in John's Gospel as when Jesus was glorified. And essentially that significant moment is recorded in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, visited these men and women in that group in the upper room with the sovereign understanding of who Christ was. And at that moment, I imagine it was as if a download flooded into their intellect and understanding, and they began to see the dots connected from the history that was planted as seeds of revelation in the Old Covenant, now blossoming forth in fulfillment and glorious life and revelatory beauty in Jesus Christ their Lord. They saw for the first time in an instant that Zechariah had prophesied that a king would come on an unlikely beast of burden, a lowly donkey, and that king would be the savior of the world. 
that he himself would be the suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied. But in his broken body, in his torn flesh, by his bruises and stripes and shed blood would be the atonement and the redemption of the sins of his people. This must happen. This would happen. But he would be gloriously manifest in every aspect of his work that we commemorate around this time of year. Not just his entrance into Jerusalem in that sort of prefiguring coronation ceremony where he, is, uh, where he is given worship as a king would when he comes triumphantly into his city after vanquishing the enemy, but also as he went from that moment to the cross and there shed the blood that would be the only sufficient substitute for the wrath that my sin and your sin deserved. But he went further the gospel revelation now flooding their hearts and minds and that sovereign download connected the dots of Christ's glorious ruling and reigning in passages like Psalm 110 of old which said that Christ would come and that He would be one in the lineage of David. He would assume the throne and He would rule and reign until God had put every enemy under His feet and they had become His footstool. These were the dots that were being connected in the minds and the consciousness of the disciples. And now, in Acts chapter 2, in the record, they are beginning to proclaim it. Once Jesus was glorified, in Acts chapter 2, we find in the hearts and minds of those who were commissioned to bear the message, a great before and after contrast. Before, when they had limited understanding, just bits and pieces, and after the Holy Ghost had revealed to their hearts the significance of who Christ was. Thus, in this very first apostolic sermon, preached after the eye-opening experience of Pentecost, Peter's voice rings with boldness induced by the indwelling of God Himself in His Word and His message and with rabbinic clarity. As a teacher commissioned to expound the Scriptures, And as an unflinching voice for truth, even in the face of adversity, this man who had denied his Lord just weeks previous, three times or less, was now speaking in such a way that he was commanding the attention of multitudes and by the Spirit's power, even presenting the gospel in multiple languages. Thus the dots are connected in the first wave for the first wave of evangelists and for all who through their testimony were given ears to hear. The theme of the great gospel declaration that Peter preached that glorious day, that prototype sermon, that initial message, the theme is the reality of Jesus Christ as both Lord and Christ. And this morning we'll explore In the context of that message, what exactly does that mean? What does Peter mean to say when he declares that Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, is two things, both Lord and Christ? Perhaps it is to say that He is Messiah and Savior and also Lord of everything. Perhaps it is to say, and I think we can find this in the record, that He is our individual hope. He is our personal Lord and Savior as we've come uh, to know those familiar terms. But more than that, He is the sovereign ruler, creator and sustainer of all the universe. Indeed, He is even Lord of the future. He is ours and He is over everything. This is our Jesus Christ. He is both Savior and Messiah and Lord of all. He is both Lord and Christ. Before I get into the heading and just three points for you this morning, let me deliver to you an illustration briefly. Have you guys ever watched Antiques Roadshow? I've maybe watched a couple episodes. What holds your attention in a show like that if you're a fan? Antiques Roadshow. Well, it's the promise of riches, treasure, right? I mean, you hear the story over and over and you wish, you know, it becomes so common on those shows, you wish you would do more garage sailing and be so lucky invariably what will happen is somebody buys a piece of artwork, let's say, at a local sale, and they pay $10 for it. It's in an old withering frame, and they keep it you know, in the back room for a while. One day they decide, well, it might look nice in the foyer. They hang it up in the entry of their home. 
And then somebody who might know art a little bit better than them visits one day and says, you know, that picture reminds me of a Monet or a Renoir or something like that. You should get that checked out. So they call up Antiques Roadshow, send a digital photo, and they say, we think you might have something here. We'll fly you out to Denver at our local deal, and so you go. And then an, uh, an assessor, whoever it is, takes a look at that picture. And they say, well, we have good news for you. I'm not sure how much you paid for this. You can tell, well, $2, to be honest. Well, you might want to get that insured for $2 million. And upon close analysis of this picture, the, uh, the uh, assessor has determined that you have stumbled upon something of great value. And what I, I just want to ask you this question. What are two aspects of a piece of artwork that somebody might look at to determine its value? Submit to you two things. The painting itself, and secondly, the signature. Those two things that are both attributed to the author, the artist, let us know that that thing is certifiably valuable, that that piece was created by a master, and it is a masterpiece of his, art, of his creation and so on. So by these two measures, the signature and the piece of art itself, that painting is determined to be something of a museum quality or so on. So the question rose in my mind as an illustration of the message of Peter's sermon, both Lord and Christ. The question rose in my mind by that illustration. If we ask this, uh, what would be your answer? Who is responsible for the signature on that painting? And who is responsible for the work of art itself? And of course, the answer is the same. If we said, is the author responsible for the painting or the signature? Our answer would be both. The painting uh, itself, the work of art, this landscape or whatever it is, as well as his name appearing in the corner, are both the product of the artist himself. He is the author of the painting and he is the author of the signature. Yet both of them speak to something of his design and purpose in that creation. And in a similar way, Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one that writes his signature on our hearts when we come to a saving relationship with him. But he is also the one that has painted the entire picture of redemption. Indeed, all of history. Creation itself, the big picture, he is responsible for. But he has also put his signature in the corner of your life. Thus, similar to a beautiful piece of artwork, we can understand something of what Peter is talking about here. He is the Lord of the individual, and he is the Lord over everything. He is both Lord and Christ. This Jesus who is crucified and has been risen, has risen from the dead and has now ascended, ever living, to rule and reign at the right hand of the Father. Here's a heading for you. Jesus is proven both Lord and Christ, both the author of the painting with his signature at the bottom, if you will, in three ways in Peter's message. Number one, in his crucifixion. Number two, in his resurrection. Number three, in his exaltation. Jesus is proven Lord and Christ in his crucifixion. He's proven Lord and Christ in his resurrection. And he's proven Lord and Christ in his exaltation. Let's revisit our text this morning in Acts 2. And let's back up a few verses and begin in verse 17. This is a prophecy and Peter is citing from Joel. Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32 to be precise. And he cites these words in his sermon as follows. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Pause there for a moment. We have the individual and we have the corporate in the theme of that one verse. Notice the prophet of old has declared that there's going to be a change in the redemptive historical record, such that the Spirit of God will be poured out ubiquitously 
The Spirit of God will be poured out all over the place, comprehensively, undeniably. He says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. But there is also an individual component. Next phrase is, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This language might be a little bit ambiguous or mysterious to us at first glance, but consider the context. There was a time in the Old Covenant where if you had an issue in your life, as we all do, namely sin, and that problem needed atoning, you needed the assurance that you were reconciled with the Lord in good standing in His favor. In short, you needed your sins covered over with a substitute sacrifice. Where would you go? Well, you couldn't just charge headlong into the Holy of Holies yourself. You had to go through a protocol and a process. You had to go through a priest. And sometimes a priest, uh, uh, not the high priest as such, uh, but a daily priest and so on, and, and not the ultimate sacrifice, but a provisional one and so on. There were multiple levels and a complicated system of outward symbology that represented the atoning work of Christ for your sins. And there were intermediaries, mediators, if you will, between God and man, the high priesthood, the Levitical order. And these allowed you access, at least provisionally, into the favor and graces of the Lord. Well, there's coming a day, says the prophet during this time, when my spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And there will be a commissioning and an anointing of not just the high priest's own worthiness to enter the Holy of Holies, But Jesus Christ, the once and for all priest and sacrifice, will tear that veil and will give free access such that young men and old men shall begin to see the presence of God in new and glorious ways that the individual had not experienced prior to. People will begin to see the glorious gospel, not just a prophet here or a prophet there, but they will have the scriptures written on the table of their own heart. There shall no longer need priests the way they had them in the Old Covenant because everyone who is in Christ can cry out and they can receive audience from the Father. When God pours out His Spirit on all flesh, all nations will begin to avail themselves of the gospel as it is preached beyond the borders of ethnic Israel. And sons and daughters shall be clued into the word of the Lord. And young men and old men shall have on access to the reality of the Word of God, such that has uh, to this point been unprecedented in your midst. Jesus has proven both Lord and Christ in this Old Testament citation revealed in Christ, and it continues in verse 18, Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now in the record, we're starting to get a picture in Old Covenant, redemptive, prophetic language of what happened on the night, on the day, I should say, of Calvary. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 45 through 54, you could write that down for further study later. Indeed, this verse, Acts 2.20, that had been prophesied in Joel, chapter 2, was fulfilled. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the prophet had declared. And indeed, in Matthew 27, darkness fell upon the earth, as Jesus Christ Himself was crucified. The rest of the language, again, may appear mysterious to us. It says, "...in the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day." The day of the Lord and its arrival, and cosmic signs in the heavenlies, and even the sun turning to darkness... We see evidence of those things even in the physical order on Calvary. We know that there was earthquakes and tombs opened. We know that there was darkness. We know that heaven and earth testified to this work, this monumental point in human history when Christ Himself suffered and bled on the cross. But these terms are more 
and just events that happen, you know, as a consequence of natural forces, they are also judgment language. The Bible uses terms like this to describe that there is a universal reckoning that is required of all humankind. And people might live as if they can get away with their sin. And they might live oblivious to the Lord in many and sundry ways. But there shall come a time when the sun no longer shines on them. And the moon that they once thought was beautiful turns into a sign of a curse over them. And the day of the Lord, the visitation of God's reckoning, will come for every, each and every man is appointed to man once to die. And after that, the judgment. So the prophet is declaring that all men will face judgment. And that day will come and it will be great and magnificent. It will be fearful and final. But there is hope. For all who live under the condemnation of the wrath of God, justly deserving of their own sins, there remains hope. But hope in Christ and His cross alone. Christ has proven both Lord and Christ in His crucifixion. Says again, verse 21, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When was this verse fulfilled? Let's continue to read Acts 22. Peter declares, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24 proceeds with the resurrection account. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The judgment that is deserving of sin is pictured in the horrific suffering and passion of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And for all who do not place their hope and trust in Him, that horrific judgment will be incurred in their own fate in the future as they suffer eternally conscious torment and hell forever. The cross testifies to the holiness of God, who is merciful, but also is a God of judgment. How can God be merciful and still not compromise His holiness? Only one way. The wrath that we deserved was taken in the stripes and the suffering and the crushing thorns on the brow, in the beatings and the bruising and the nails and the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ, the Lord of our redemption, on that day on Calvary. On that day, the essence of our salvation came to pass and so it is every day since that moment when Christ suffered and bled that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved Jesus Christ has proven Lord and Christ in his crucifixion the crucifixion reminds us that our sin is deserving of judgment and that judgment is inescapable, and that reckoning is universal. But if that crucifixion scene is ours, if we own it, if we confess we are lost without it, and it is our only hope for salvation, the cross becomes ours. Jesus Christ writes His signature on our heart, and our sins are atoned for. And it has come to pass at that moment then in your life when you confess faith and Christ shed blood as you call upon Him, as you call upon the name of Jesus Christ, you shall, and if you have done that, you were saved. There is in the cross the picture and the declaration of universal reckoning and particular atonement. Jesus Christ has proven Lord in Christ in His crucifixion. We've covered this in relationship to the Old Covenant testimony and its fulfillment. Secondly, let us notice one other thing in the record here in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs 
that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Consider that clause for a moment. Peter was speaking to people who were aware of certain things that happened to Christ and that Christ did. In other words, there was an attestation or there was evidence that Christ was who he said he was in three categories. His works, his wonders, and his signs. These things were not done in a corner. As Paul later tells the Greeks, the pagans, as he goes out, even the leaders, the rulers, he says these things weren't done in a corner. They've been well published. They're common knowledge. But here's the question that ought to strike a twinge of fear in our hearts as we read it. If Jesus Christ came, not alone, not without signs, not without evidence, but by powerful miracles, signs, wonders, works that followed him, how is it that those who experienced that, either in their hearing or maybe even with their eyesight, remained unconvinced? How is it that that did not compel them to believe His message? God did all these signs through His Christ, and yet, and they themselves knew it, and yet they did not submit to that attestation. They were not compelled. They were not convinced. They remained hard of heart. But not just indifferent. Not just indifferent. Oh, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. I'm just kind of skeptical. No. After these people saw what happened and heard with their ears the mighty works that Jesus of Nazareth did, they called for His crucifixion. His death and suffering on Calvary. How do we make sense of this? We make sense of this in this way. The attestation that they expected The kind of Messiah that they had in their own mind was different than the Christ that appeared on the pages of history. They were expecting something else. In first century Palestine, there had been some political tumult. There had been a number of factors affecting the culture at that time. Powers had arisen and had taken away their liberty. There had been coups that were staged to regain their independence. During the Maccabean period and so on, during the intertestamental times, during about four centuries of this kind of back and forth and tension, there, uh, the cultural situation uh, uh, was less defined by the Scriptures, as Joel had prophesied, for instance, and more defined by their experience. The high priesthood had become a political office. It had, it had lost a lot of its essential symbolic meaning. And now people were hoping for political de- uh, deliverance. They wanted a Messiah who was Lord, but they weren't looking, if you will, for the Christ. They were looking for a Messiah who would demonstrate His uh, universal authority against their political adversaries and occupiers, but not necessarily one who would point to their wicked heart and say, you are a sinner in need of salvation. And my primary task in this moment in history is to suffer and die on that tree of Calvary as a substitute for you. Your biggest enemy is your own sin nature, not occupying Rome, not the political forces that come and go in this life. Jesus Christ is both Lord and Christ. He is your Savior from your sin. And these were the works And this is what the work of Christ attested to. But because people didn't think of themselves all that much as sinners, no doubt, and because they wanted and expected something else in their preconceived notion of what a Messiah would look like, even though His work was attested by miracles, works, signs, and wonders, they remained oblivious to the truth. This is a lesson for us today. May we not have any preconceived notions of who Christ is, or what salvation is, or what hope for the future is. May we repent of anything that we have stuck in our mind that blinds us to the truth of our own sin, so that now when we hear the Word even preached to us today, from the pages of God's infallible Scripture, that it might cut to the heart as it did these people. And now with the attestation of the Spirit's use of His Word, We see ourselves in desperate need of a Christ who is both Lord and our Savior. 
these well-published mighty works, signs, and wonders, they do beg the question, what kind of attestation were the first century Jews looking for? Let us not judge the kettle black. Let us consider our own hearts in this day. What are we conditioned to look for, for hope and assurance and security and peace and happiness and love and whatever makes us smile and get out of bed in the morning. Is it Christ and Christ alone? Or is it something else? Today it seems reversed, by the way. We want a Messiah and a Christ who is like a personal Savior. And our culture today doesn't want to hear about the sovereign Lordship of Jesus. They don't want to hear about a Messiah that is Lord over every area of life and thought. Our culture would rather relegate the Jesus Christ who created this world, sustains it, and is Lord over salvation and the future. They would rather relegate the confession of that truth to your private life, perhaps the four walls of this church, to something that is true for you, but you don't assert in public or with anyone else. They have their truth, you have yours, we're told. Don't give me the message of a sovereign God, of a universal judgment one day, of a day of reckoning where I must answer for the way I live my life before a God who is holy and will not compromise His character by letting into His presence a sinner like myself who lives every day of His waking life serving His selfish pleasures. That message is offensive today, as offensive today as it ever was. And whether or not it's one thing or the other that's emphasized, if we don't understand that Jesus Christ is universally Lord and Christ, our personal Savior and sovereign over all, we have not met the true Jesus of Scripture. And He calls us this day to meet Him through His cross. The sovereign work of Christ is emphasized even in our text, even in His crucifixion. That is to say, Peter shows Jesus Christ proven to be both Lord and Christ by citing the Old Covenant prophecies, but also the work that has just taken place in their midst, in the very geography in which these people resided in verse 23 of Acts chapter 2. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But this was not a gratuitous act that was unforeseen by the sovereign. No, this was something that was according to the foreknowledge and eternal decree of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God is such that He is proves glorious even in using the greatest sin in history in one sense to accomplish for us our redemption. And so the pagans and the Jews alike who condemned and killed our Lord Jesus Christ played into the hands of God's ultimate purposes when He was delivered up according to God's plan and foreknowledge for our sin. Thus again, proving Jesus Christ both Lord and Christ in His crucifixion. Secondly, this morning, Peter, as he delivers this message, moves to resurrection. Jesus Christ has proven Lord in Christ. In His resurrection, verse 24, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, and here he quotes again the Old Testament. He does this three times, all three points of our organization of his sermon this morning. Here's the second one from Psalm 16, 8-11. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My tongue also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Of that we all are witnesses, namely witnesses to the resurrection of this Jesus Christ. Again, Psalm 116 is quoted. 
Who's the author of that psalm? Well, ultimately the Holy Spirit, but by human authorship, David himself. <clears throat> David was a forerunner, a foreshadow. He in his own service, in his office as king, was a type of Christ. He symbolized the Messiah and his rule and reign to come. Thus we see in the scripture that Jesus is assigned the name Son of David. Jesus is assigned many names in Scripture because of all of the fulfilling attributes and actions of His person and His ministry. Another name that Jesus is called in Scripture is a second Adam. Jesus is, in one sense, a second David, and He is also a second Adam. And in these two, uh, in, in these two designations, we have again a sort of example of the signature and painting analogy. The signature, who would come like David, who would sit on his throne forever, who would fulfill these prophecies of an unending chain of succession of David's lineage, someone sitting on his throne. Well, there would come one individual who would rule and reign for both now and forever. And that is the signature, if you will, Jesus Christ, the only one who could fulfill the prophecies as the son of David and fulfill the prophecy that his rule and his kingdom would reign forever, even now as he, as death, could not keep him in the grave and he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. So that is the individual example of the fulfillment of this text. But there's another example of fulfillment and I gather this language from 1 Corinthians 15. Don't necessarily need to turn there, but it deals directly again with resurrection. And it also deals with this second term that I wanted to give you for Christ this morning, the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 24 reads, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Thus we see in the resurrection of Jesus Christ the signature fulfillment. He is ruling and reigning as the son of David forever. We see the painting fulfillment. He is the second Adam such that all who are in him, that is, share in his experience, that is, their sins have been atoned for in his blood, they will be raised with him. They will share in his experience of being raised from the dead and will rule and reign and live eternally with him forever. Thus, the resurrection proves him both Lord and Christ in the signature sense of fulfilling the old covenant to his servant David and in the painting sense of gathering with him saints who will populate the throne room of heaven, the realms of glory, and worship forever in participating in His resurrection forever and ever. There's a historical attestation in this text that I mentioned back again in Acts chapter 2 of uh, citing David's own writing. David himself, as I mentioned, was significant, but Peter mentions the significance of David's ministry in two ways. He says in verse 29 that he was a patriarch. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Just want you to note Peter's emphasis there. David was a forerunner, a forefather, a patriarch. Yet these words that David wrote, he couldn't have written about himself because he was buried and the evidence of his, of his mortality remained at the point uh, up to this point of Peter preaching, and the most obviously so, that his tomb was verifiably present. You could dig up his bones if you knew where they were. He was not alive, but he wrote as the lineage of Christ. David wrote as the lineage of Christ. 
and in the first person prophetically revealed that there would come one of his seed, of his sons, who would arrive on the scene of history one day, and that king would rule and reign forever. Thus David was a patriarch, but in this way he was also a prophet. David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, that is, and David, in Psalm 16, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So here we find in David's record, and in the glorious connecting of the dots, when the Holy Spirit illumined the hearts of the disciples to the truth of all God's Scripture, we see that David himself prefigured Christ and prophesied Christ. David said that there would come a one in the future, a holy one, who would not see corruption. That is, his body would not pass away, ultimately speaking. That is, one would come who death and hell would not have ultimate power over. It was not possible for him, in Peter's words, to be held by it, that is, by death, because he was the son of David, the Holy One, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. He was the son of David, the second Adam, the risen and now reigning and ruling Christ, Jesus, the one of whom the prophet spoke. Son of David and son of God. We see descendancy, is Jesus as a descendant, and we see a fulfillment. The particulars of history, of the past history, and the course of history are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the course of history future is heralded by the witnesses who first beheld, or who beheld firsthand the glory of Christ in His resurrection when He transcended the grave, transcended death, and was risen to newness of life on that glory, in that glorious moment 2,000 plus years ago. It indeed was not possible for death to hold this man because he triumphed over death and the grave. He, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of David, the, the second Adam, our Savior, our Messiah, rose on that glorious day. And when it dawned on the disciples, the power of that moment, they knew that the hinge of history had been screwed down in place at this moment and forever and for all time, Christ himself had not only proven victorious over sin, but he would be proven faithful and the savior of all who would place their trust in him. Thirdly, this morning, Jesus is proven both Lord in Christ in his exaltation. We have crucifixion, resurrection, and thirdly, in Peter's message, exaltation. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, or we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and this is a quote from Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, the signature and the painting. The signature, if you will, could be the ascension Where was the moment in Christ's ministry when he was exalted at the right hand of the Father? Well, it was that moment indeed where his literal feet, his physical feet, left the terrestrial expanse of this globe and began to ascend into glory, viewed by those that were watching and looking on, who would then go to the upper room and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He was exalted at the right hand of the Father, and in that action we see the signature of his work in that incident, in that moment. But it goes beyond that. We see in this also a representation or the assurance that he will ultimately subjugate all his enemies 
under those feet that have risen from this earth to the right hand of the Father. Do you remember Psalm 110? Or Psalm 110 1 reminds us of this. And do we remember from a little bit earlier? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Later, this is reading later in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the mortal puts on immortality and then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the enemy that was spoken of earlier in the same passage when we read in verse 24, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That moment when Christ ascended before the Father, he ascended to rule. He ascended to reign. He ascended to subjugate every enemy underneath his feet until everyone is reduced to rubble, dust beneath his footstool, as it were. Thus, in this great act of exaltation, we have the signature fulfillment and we have the big picture, the painting as well. You and I are living in the victory parade of Jesus Christ. Even though things may seem dark for a moment, you may read the news headlines and think, The enemy has the upper hand. He certainly does not. He certainly is shown to be defeated when we look to the work of Christ in Scripture and when we look to the work that Christ will continue to do into the future, even beyond this point and time. And for all who are believers in this room, we have collected here evidence of His power to subjugate His enemies under His feet. Yes, indeed. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if He is your Savior and Lord, He has conquered your enemy sin, your enemy Satan, and your enemy death. And He has placed that under His feet. And when you pass away from this veil of tears, you will not die, but you will be resurrected with Him to live eternally. And this is the power of Jesus Christ to subjugate His enemies under His feet. But not just that. Even the enemies that rise in the course of history, like powers and kingdoms and ideas and notions and philosophies and whims and winds of doctrine, every one will be erased, will be thrown down, will be destroyed until such time as the new heavens and new earth inaugurate the unquestioned, the unadulterated, forever glorious reign of Jesus Christ over everything for all of time. And this is the future of the exaltation of Jesus Christ, where the signature and the painting are both in full view, where His ascension has now produced its fruit and ultimate subjugation of all His enemies under His feet. Now this is a significant moment in time when this message was preached. Peter says in this very first of the messages, after the Holy Spirit has, had visited His commissioned few, This is the very first message that came forth in this kind of clarity. It says, again, Peter's message, Acts 2.33, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he he himself says, "...the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter calls the attention of the crowd to a miracle that is taking place in their midst. I would submit to you it's a miracle that goes beyond the spectacular evidence of the Spirit in the speaking of tongues. And there were also divided tongues of fire that had rested upon them in this moment. But the significance of this event would go far beyond this moment in time. And it would be the declar- and it would be evident for all time and in all places in the declaration of Christ's word, where the Holy Spirit is pleased to use this means 
even what we are setting our attention upon this morning to draw our attention to this Lord and Christ Jesus and to realize our sin for what it is, our Savior for who He is, to place our hope in Him and to be gloriously overwhelmed with the revelation that He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of old. And He is the one who shapes and controls and governs and subjugates all the enemies in all His enemies into the future. And He is the one who has gone before to prepare a mansion for you if you are in Him today in glory, that you might join Him in His exaltation sooner than later. The effect of this sermon, the power of this sermon that Peter preached is also its application. Let me close with these verses. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. How did the crowd respond to what Peter had just declared that we've read and now set our attention on? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And were added that day about 3,000 souls when the holy spirit is pleased to use his word as hebrews declares as a double-edged sword it will cut you to the heart and it will produce one of two things an obstinate denial or a surrender and a submission jesus christ i have no other hope but you into your hands as it were i commit my spirit You see that this juggernaut of a gospel sermon had an effect on the hearers such that it reached into their core and allowed the truth to push aside the lies that they had entertained and the facade that they had constructed and they saw themselves as wicked sinners who had just crucified the Lord of glory, who had been responsible for pounding the nails into those sinless hands and feet. And the innocent one who had never committed a single act of sin was destroyed by these sinners and their heart and attitude. And they realized it for the first time and lighted the clear gospel message. And what did they do? They repented and then they were baptized. They were renamed as it were. They were identified in the fellowship of those who now claim the name of Jesus as their chief and sole identity and salvation. And they received the forgiveness of their sins. And they were saved from the wicked and crooked generation who still was around them with all their vehement denial, vehement denial, and all their obstinate unbelief. Yet 3,000, by God's grace, were added to the numbers. And more would be added. And more would be added. Until today, when even more are being added And at a future time, at a date when only our Lord knows, the number will be full and He will return. I pray that you, if you do not know Him, would be added even today. How do you know that you understand and appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this question directly. How do you personally know that you understand and appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? As it is with most holidays, it's corrupted by commercialism. You know, many of us will go from here to have maybe a nice meal, to hang out with family members. We just assume not see much anyways, aside from this circumstance. I'm not saying that uh, personally. Full disclaimer. Um, We do certain things just because of the obligation of the occasion. We buy chocolate rabbits, we hide colored eggs, and all that kind of stuff. And if we're not careful, all of that can be a distraction from this question. Do you understand and appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because those things I just mentioned don't represent an understanding and an appreciation 
of the work of Calvary, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ? Well, the answer to that question comes in the effect of a message like this in your own heart. If you have, if you have, that is, appreciated and understood the resurrection of Jesus, you yourself have also, or you will, repent of your sins, and you will realize that He is both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's transition in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that these words that were spoken so long ago would be spoken afresh by Your Spirit's power to each of our hearts. For those that are in Christ at fellowship here today, I pray that the consequence and effect of this moment where we realize afresh the joy of our salvation and the truth of the resurrection, I pray that they would produce a heart of service, of faithfulness, of obedience, and of worship. And for those who may gather here this morning that have not, Lord Jesus, confessed faith in Christ alone, that they would produce what they produced in the hearers when Peter first preached them, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and His blood is their salvation alone. And now as we participate in communion this morning, I pray that you would remind us that it is by the power of your shed blood and by the power of your broken body that our sins are atoned for, both now and forever. I thank you, Lord, for the reality of that transaction where your righteousness was imputed to us and our sins were judged on your body and by your blood. I thank you, Lord, that we can appreciate that in this symbolic moment today. Help us to realize and appreciate, even through communion, the glorious work of this season where we celebrate the cross, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.